Hey, welcome to Creative Block. We're your hosts, Gene. And V, we interview people in the creative industries about their life, work, and hobbies while we doodle jam. We asked people on Twitter if they had specific topics they wanted us to discuss, as well as some drawing prompts. And today with us, we have Jason DeMarco. Hi. Hi. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, you are somewhat of a legend. You are uh, the co-founder of. Mind. You're the co-founder of Toonami. Uh, you uh, were an instrumental figure in, in Adult Swim and William Street Records. You've done so many different things. I don't think we're going to be able to get to all of them, but we can we can definitely try, right? <laughs> um, and you are also our first uh, True Blue executive. We've had some people who uh, like worked as executives and then moved into creative fields, but we want to hear about that world and what that's like sure. and and um the stuff that you've done is so so creatively driven that i find it fascinating because like tsunami was huge to me growing up still i mean you know in adult swim and everything i i feel like for those who don't know like you pretty much i won't, I won't say single-handedly because i know there's a, a whole team but you've been a central figure in shaping like an entire generation or two or more maybe i don't know of mm -hmm. like of interest and bringing in so much anime to the states and all kinds of stuff um and uh and so yeah it's it's a it's a ton to unpack but let's take yeah. it back let's take it back you know to where you were first starting out um at which point do you feel like you first kind of embarked on on this journey that you call your um, career i i think for me i so i think anybody that it gets a good job in media. It usually starts with opportunity. You know what I mean? And that can be someone, you know, or that can be a situation you find yourself in. I was in college and a friend of mine's friend from Atlanta named Sean Akins was coming to visit. And my friend's apartment where he was going to stay was such a disgusting pigsty cool that he was like he was like i can't ask him to stay here can he stay at your place because i had a fold-out couch and i said yeah sure so we met and it, you know liked each other and i was close to graduating from i went to college at savannah uh college of art mm -hmm. and design i was close to graduating at that time and i said hey man when i graduate can i come to atlanta and hit you up for work he at the time was working at tnt turner network television mm -hmm. making promos and he said, "Yeah, call me when you graduate." Mm -hmm. So I graduated. I called him, and he was like, "Yeah, move to Atlanta. We'll see what happens." Hmm. So I went ahead and rolled the dice, moved to Atlanta. I mean, I didn't have any other prospects. Um, and then he got me a writing test. So um, at at TNT, and basically, he knew he was leaving for Cartoon Network at that time. Uh, his boss, Mike Lazo had said, hey, come on over, work for me at Cartoon Network. So Sean knew he was leaving. So he went to his boss at TNT and said, hey, I'm leaving, but I got a hot new prospect for you. <laughs> and that woman, Andrea Taylor, who's a wonderful person, was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. Does he have a reel? And I had like my reel of college short films or whatever. And uh, she said, well, have him take a writing test. So I took the writing test, got in and started working at TNT. At the same time, oh, and then when they hired me, they were like, you're not just going to quit in two years and go work for Sean, are you? And I was like, no. And that's exactly what happened. Oh, no. <laughs> I started yes. working at TNT making promos, and I love movies, so it was a super fun job for me. It was just like making 
like movies for the be- promos for like the Beastmaster and Clint Eastwood yeah. movies and the types of stuff that you know they showed on TNT, which I loved. Um, but at the same time, Sean was developing. You know, they Lazo had said, "Hey, the bo- the afternoon cartoon block we have of action shows is doing terribly. We need you to come up with like a new thing, like some new packaging for it." So Sean called me down the floor below to to Cartoon Network. So I would moonlight with Sean, basically brainstorming what would become Toonami. We had all kinds of ideas. For like a year, we were in development on it. And at the same time, I was working at TNT. So what's that process like? Like what kind of factors come into play when you're brainstorming like a media block like that's that's such a unique thing to have to try to figure out is there like marketing research or things like that no i mean back then it was the wild west this is 1996 yeah so things were not as settled in the industry as they are now so it was really just ratings it was like well we know they wanted boys young boys at the time Mm -hmm. to watch this afternoon after school block and they were like we know boys aren't watching it so what can we do to draw a new audience so we knew we wanted to do a hosted block. Um, and for a while we were going to do a live action. It was, it was going to be a green screen set with a live action young woman host who talked to a, an AI named surge. Mm-hmm. And we actually got to the point where we were even casting. We can we, we had an, we interviewed Selma Blair oh, wow. before she was famous. She was 14. Yeah. She was going to be our host. And then we scrapped all of it and decided, you know what, we should just do full animation CG. And Lazo at the time said, well, we own all these Hanna-Barbera characters. Why don't you just find one from the library? So we chose Moltar because he had a helmet and he didn't have a mouth. Uh, and yeah. we knew we could make him nod his head. Yeah. <laughs> and it was all you need. And, 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 you know, other than that, we were making reels and, and sort of cutting together vibe kind of promos mm-hmm. of like, here's the music, here's the types of shows we would want to put in. So we would like go to the rental store, you know, cause you could rent videos back then, go to the rental store. There was a Japanese rental store in Atlanta at the time that would have anime. It was untranslated, but they would have like Dragon Ball Z movies and stuff before you could really get that stuff in any other way. So we would rent those, literally dub the tapes and then use those to like cut together like here's what here's what we want this block to feel like and then we would get skateboarding videos so it was literally just sort of trying to help our bosses understand the vibe we were going for and so based on all of that and the fact that we came up with the name Toonami we had a big list of names and Toonami was one I came up with Mm -hmm. and Lazo said let's call it that yeah and they just said okay we'll give you a little bit of money and you can hire like three people and we'll see what happens and that's kind of how it all started in 96 yeah. or seven, is, when I was like, three years. Is there um, uh, just a, a random question, but is there a reason why they specifically wanted to target uh, younger boys? The thinking at the time was that young boys, the thinking still is to some degree that young women don't watch cartoons mm. yeah. that the same, the same amount that young boys do. and. Uh, and that was, I will say that, that it's very reductive, obviously, but it yeah. was somewhat proven out in audience at that time. Now you could argue, well, if all the shows are very boy centric, right. then why would young women watch? Um, but generally boys also bought more toys, made their parents mm-hmm. buy more toys. And the thinking then was, 
women young women mature faster they grow out of stupid shit like toys and cartoons <laughs> earlier than boys do so we need to keep the boys as long as possible and that was for like the first five to ten years of tsunami the driving for force our demos that we were supposed to be reaching were boys nine to 14. And if we ever did anything that was too girl focused or got too much of a girl audience, it was mm -hmm. like, Oh, why are you doing that? Because at the time Disney totally owned that audience. And it was the thinking at the network was we can't beat them, but we can beat them with boys. That, was that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. all psychological like profiles. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that, that uh, they were targeting nine to fourteen because I still I feel like that's still not a tapped market. Like it's just now we're starting to see more and more that like young adult sort of content coming out. I hate the word content. Yeah. I shouldn't have said that, but uh, yeah. you know, that's but good. media. But um, yeah. yeah, and and so it feels like to me. I mean, I was in ninety. I wasn't even watching Tsunami at that point. I think I finally tuned in. It was like maybe almost two thousand by the time I got cable, but. Um, I was like 11, you know, <laughs> and so I was like right in the age group. You guys were, yeah, you were perfect. In perfect. The yeah. Um, and, uh, and so like, it felt like it was so well curated for exactly the kind of thing that an 11 year old boy in the year 2000 was into. Um, yeah. I mean, psychologically, the thing we always said was we want, we wanted Tom, the host to seem like your cool yeah. older brother who was bringing you the cool stuff like the cool music yeah. the cool video games the cool interviews with people that have cool jobs that you might want to grow up and do one day yep. and obviously the cool cartoons you know yeah. that was the goal um yeah and still kind of is except now we're talking to adults sure well now we yeah all all those kids have... that's your cool pal it's your cool friend <laughs> it's your cool buddy it's your cool friend it's your cool buddy that's like hey have you seen yeah. this like new underground hip-hop thing or your let's cool uncle now for those of you people that have been watching it for 25 years yeah, i mean that's yeah that's got that's really... what i was gonna ask is like you're you're basically making now the content for the same kids that you were like the kids who grow up right the same yeah. audience that you were making the content for that's kind of cool that's really cool it's, yeah, I would say our country is kind of, especially now you go through a generation like every five years. Yeah. So it's, mm. it's like five generations, micro generations, you know, of audience. So it's pretty crazy because at this point we still have people finding us every day that have never watched Tsunami before. Mm. And then mm -hmm. we still, and then we also have people that have been watching for, since we came back to Adult Swim and never heard of it before that. And for them, that's a long time because that's 2012. You could yeah. call yourself a long time viewer. If you've been watching something for a decade, that's mm -hmm. a long time. Yeah. And that is not even close to the people that have been watching since day one, which we still have a decent number of people that have been watching since 1996. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Pretty bananas. Yeah. Do you guys ever think about like how the current uh, viewership could potentially bring in like their kids and is it something that you guys are thinking about in terms of like maybe now like it's dad and his kids watching the programming or is it just like no it's just like only for no um... we hear i mean you know we don't it's since it's on adult swim we're never going to worry about like trying to find kid content but right mm -hmm. anecdotally when i've been to conventions many many times i've been told by people you know, I grew up and used to watch it and now I watch it with my son or my daughter or like, you know, my brother watched it when when he was 
you know, younger. And now I watch it. I used to watch it with him when I was too little to even know what it was. Now, now we watch it together and I'm in college and he's a grown up. But when we get back together at home, we watch it. And, yeah. you know, you hear stories like that, that which are I mean, obviously, that's wonderful when people say stuff like that. Yeah. You mentioned the micro generations thing. I find that really interesting because I don't think I don't think I've ever heard anybody really talk about that. And and I feel like probably from an exec world, like you have to be aware of those things. Um, and how I guess my question is, like, how much of a conscious effort is it to keep track of these shifts in um, like mm. psychology and trends? Or is it just kind of something you feel like you are like absorbing through, you know, osmosis being online? I, will, I mean, I will say that since so much of Toonami is the point of view of a group of people that work on it, and really it does come from our hearts and souls a lot um so you know we pick shows we like like we don't do anything because the network mandates it because the network has always been at least especially in the adult swim era they've let us do what we wanted as long as we didn't go banana spending money that's pretty much mm -hmm. the adult swim method is here's a tiny bit of money you can do what you want but if you ask for more money, it'll be a little harder for you to do exactly right. what you want. So, <laughs> so, you know, we're largely given free reign to pick the shows we like, to make the kinds of things we want to make, to redesign Tom whenever we want, you know, like within our budget, it's completely under our control. So you have to, so it all comes from us. And then when things change in the culture, it's like you kind of have to stay on top of things somewhat you can't not be on social media at all you can't not be plugged into trends in anime trends in music you know it, because then you start to feel the block starts to feel old because you're old you know it's, yeah. it's sort of hard so <laughs> excuse me um for i will use a, attack on titan as an example we premiered attack on titan in like 2013 or whenever it first came mm -hmm. out and we were so excited about it um because the idea was so cool and we had seen the first couple episodes and I wanted to make this t horrifying trailer that was like a horror movie, right? Yeah. And and I really focused on the fact that these are giant people eating humans. And at the time, we were still working in that style of trailer where we had the voice of God and stuff. Yes. But largely, the culture had kind of moved on from the voice of God in trailers. Hmm. So we cut this big voice of God trailer for Attack on Titan and released it. And... It was a very eye. It was an eye opener for me because tons of people commented like, "What is this stupid shit? This this sounds like a trailer from 1970." Like, there was a whole generation of anime fans who had never seen Toonami, who had gotten their anime straight from the source, Funimation or Crunchyroll or whatever, watched it only subtitled. You know, the whole that whole generation, and loved Japanese style trailers. And when they saw this, they were like not only did it not feel like one of the trailers from Japan, it also didn't feel like like a movie trailer because movie trailers don't have voiceover anymore. So I got, there were a lot of comments on like, this is so sad and old school. That's so so mean. That, that oh my a, gosh. You know, people are, people are harsh. And I, I, I mean, certainly when you put anything out on the internet, you're going to get negative response. So I didn't take it to heart, but I did say, you know what? They're right though. Nobody uses the voice of God anymore. And if we want to keep up with the times, we need to start cutting our trailers the way movie trailers are cut. They need to just be sound bites from the from the you know show with cool music. That's it. Like we have to move with the times. And that was I remember that was a key one for like the current version of Toonami was just like, oh right, 
this music or, or like when we stopped using drum and bass mm-hmm. because drum and bass kind of fell out of favor and it was harder to get good drum and bass and it was like well the you know obviously society's moved on from yeah. drum and bass so that kind of stuff you just have to pay attention to that stuff i like all these drawings that's v yeah. v is just v oh, just goes you. off like a rocket it's, yeah it's amazing <laughs> Tom eating cereal is the one as the one person suggestion. Yes, like it. it's good. Yeah, fruit salad. It was Tom eating a fruit salad. Yeah, um, yeah. He he would never eat a fruit salad though. But yeah. Oh god, so... man! I should not have. I'm I'm not being faithful to the character. He uh, devises fruit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he devises fruit. That's probably well, he, why the problem. he doesn't eat anyway. But fruit is fruit would definitely if he did eat he wouldn't eat. Fruit. Yeah. Speaking of Tom, um, I think that mm. uh, something that was really like you know impressive to me at the time was when you guys did those big crossover events where it like yeah. suddenly now you know things are going wrong with the absolution and like you have to go and play this flash game and like it was such a brilliant way to like cross those two streams like the internet was still like pretty fresh yeah. and uh yeah. what was the conception of that and what brought that uh to fruition transmedia before transmedia yeah. um we so it came up because we knew we wanted to. So at the time, Clay Croker was the voice of of uh, Moltar. Mm-hmm. And Clay was great, but Clay had a full-time gig as Moltar on Space Coast Coast to Coast. And he kind of wasn't really into doing Toonami. Hmm. Like, he's a nice guy and we got along great. But when you got him in the booth, he was really not into, like, making the extra effort. So when we would talk about skate videos or, like, the little – we call them homilies, the little Tom things where he talks about anger. Or, yeah, yeah. You know. Those you are know, great. He would be, like, not into reading those. And so it got – we we just got to a point where we were, like, maybe we should think about making our own character and our own mythos and just, like – and that's the other thing is we occasionally we would get comments from Lazo about – how Moltar looked or the space ghost planet looked or, you know, we were like, you know what, we just need to do our own thing. So we recast Tom as the voice of Sonny straight Krillin from, from the U S dub of Dragon Ball Z. And when we knew, we knew when we built Tom that he was really cool looking, but he had these backwards knees. If you remember the original little pot belly Tom yes. had backwards knees and it was a cool design thing, but we always were never like we argued with the design team like that's not practical. And they were like, but it looks cool. <laughs> and eventually, they just got tired of animating these weird backward knees. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, well, we got to make a new Tom. And I was like, OK, why don't we make a thing out of it instead of just doing it like every other block does? You just refresh and don't talk about why. Let's turn it into a story where like, let's kill this guy. And let's bring back a cool, let's give him a new aged up body. And he's like aging up with the audience. And they they bought my idea and thought, hey, that's a cool idea. So we plotted it out. It was going to cost tons of, it was like a million dollars, which back then was was, was crazy. Yeah. And uh, they said, well, if we, we can give you that money if you get a sponsor, but you got to have something else for people to do. So we said, well, what about like a flash game? You know, and so we came up with this flash game and hired this company to do it and so really it was all because we were going to do it anyway but it was going to cost a ton of money Lazo was not happy about that much money being spent on what he called stupid fucking packaging and i used this <laughs> direct quote uh, and he was like no one's watching the damn show because of the stupid fucking packaging yeah. they're watching because of the shows man and we were like no it's both it's both. Um, but you know we had that argument with him for 20 years straight 
you know, he always gave us money. He always hooked us up, but then he always was like, don't get ahead of yourself. You're not that great. So, uh, <laughs> what a good actor. So, so he was like, if you can get a sponsor, man, sure. And that you guys probably don't remember this, but that first, the sponsor was a, a six flags. It was like, and we had a whole contest where we took the winner to six different six flags mm -hmm. across the country. And there was a t-shirt giveaway and all this stuff, but that's how it all started was, we knew we were going to blow this money and the network was like, you need to figure out a way to defray that cost. So we just came up with other stuff that people could do. Yeah. And then that did so well, the client was happy. Everybody was happy that we decided to do it again the next year when we refreshed again. And then we had lockdown, which had an even more elaborate game and then, a, you know, bigger. Um, and we did it for a couple of years before eventually, like in any kind of TV sales thing, it's always trends. And eventually, you know, we ran out of gas. We couldn't go back with the same thing to the same clients. And so we just decided, eh, let's just put it to bed for a while. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pepper in some questions from Twitter because we had a lot of good stuff. Please. Uh, from at Casey Williams, uh, you help bring anime into the mainstream for so many millennials. And most of us saw anime for the first time on Toonami. But how did you first discover slash get into anime? Oh, um, yeah, I first started getting into anime when I was very young, when I was like, uh, say six years old. I lived in upstate New York. That's where I was born mm -hmm. and raised, um, Albany, Schenectady area. Um, and at the time, it, in cable at the time, in certain markets, there were they would show two different things. They would show Force 5, which was five different shows, one every day of the week. And it was like Space Gadeer, Space Gateers, Brave Radine, you know, Guy King. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was, it was giant robot shows for the most part. And then <laughs> after that, they started showing Star Blazers and really it was Star Blazers. And then they showed Robotech. It was really Star Blazers and Robotech where I was a kid. I would, I had to get up at five in the morning to watch them. I would get up, watch my shows, get ready for school and go to school. And my, I was so early that no one in my house was up. So I was allowed to just go downstairs and have the TV to myself. Such a golden So I moment, remember, yeah. I know, I remember the year that I watched Star Blazers and it blew my mind because I was like, this is a cartoon, but people are dying and they're having <laughs> yeah. like real relationships and they're falling in love and they're having adult feeling arguments and there's all these cool spaceships. And like, to me, it just felt like, a whole other world from the cartoons I had been watching, which I still love, but like so different from Tom and Jerry, like, you know what yeah. I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then Robotech was sort of more of the same. And from that point on, I just tried to find anime wherever I could, which in those days was you go to the video store or you go to a convention and try to find fan bootlegs of like, you know, subtitles. So it would just be go to the, and then after that, it became go to the video store, look at the box art, <laughs> uh, you know, get yeah. whatever, rent whatever's there. So this that's looks how cool. You, that's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how you get like Ninja Scroll mm -hmm, and like, you mm -hmm. know, all kinds of cool stuff like that. And then Akira, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I became an anime fan was through exposure to television broadcasts. Um, and then at the time you really had to be dedicated if you wanted to be an anime fan anime fans today <laughs> have it way easier oh yeah uh, which is why those of us from my era have no patience for gatekeeping uh, mm. because we're like we're like fuck you i grew up in a time where you had to 
really go out of your way to find anything or even to find information on anything on what was coming who an artist was who uh let alone like who an animator was you know now oh, people God, do yeah. these sakaga yeah, yeah, yeah. blogs back then you couldn't find any of that yeah, stuff you had to buy you had to buy every anime magazine which were mostly by fans and didn't have a lot of real actual information there was no scholarly anything written about anime back then yeah so like you know when people now are like uh hate normies being into jojo or like you know <laughs> anyone who watches yeah. the dub is lame is like i yeah. have just no patience for it none yeah gatekeeping is always bullshit and it's like if you are that bothered by it like why were you into it were you into it just to be different or were you actually into it like it just feels like this weird right. club that people create it turns into a fetishization yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of japanese culture mm -hmm. which i think is when it gets gross and anime believe me i've met enough anime creators and worked with enough of them to know that they do not give a shit about otaku or what or weebs or what they think yeah. they're just like those nerds, they don't care at all. That's not why they work. Right. They don't work for the approval of strangers on the internet. <laughs> yeah. No, none, of, none of us should. Um, yeah. I mean, more power to them. Uh, Casey also had a follow-up question. Uh, how did you discover the god-tier combo that is anime and underground hip-hop? I mean, that was sort of obvious for us, even though it doesn't feel like it would be, but it seemed like it to us. It was when we were developing Toonami, we were like, we looked around in every single kid's block. And even now, today, it's 25 years later. So many kids' blocks are just like screaming guitars. Like, yeah. And the and the announcer going like, you know, tonight on another day, hey kids. Yeah. It's like it just <laughs> felt all like talking down to kids. It felt like somebody who's lazy doesn't really like what they're talking about, doesn't really give a shit about the cartoon that they're selling you and just wants you to just do the thing that they need you to do, but they don't actually give a shit about you or even that what they're doing. And so for us, we were like, we wanted to come at it from the point of view of this shit is cool. These cartoons are cool. We're gonna put music we think is cool with it. We're gonna talk about things we think are cool. Our whole thing is we genuinely like this stuff and hope you will too. That's That was it. That was the mission. So at the time, most of the music in our group, most of what we listened to was heavy metal, which we didn't want to use yeah. for Toonami, at least not at the beginning, hip hop and electronic music. And if you're listening to electronic music, pacing wise, drum and bass makes a lot of sense to cut promos to. Yeah. So that's why we started in that wheelhouse. We were just fans of hip hop. And we knew nobody was using hip hop on kid stuff because hip hop was still scary to a lot of old <laughs> studio executives. Lazo was crazy enough that he was like, yeah, fuck it, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we wanted to originally use like library music, but at the time there wasn't even hip hop library music, like cheap tracks you could use. So we had to start going out to original artists. And that's how the whole music thing got started was because we would reaching out to different artists to create beats for us for Toonami. So it was a lot of work to be able to bring in hip hop because we essentially had to just make it happen ourselves but it just felt natural to us. It felt like anime should anime is cool as hell. Cartoons are cool as hell. They should be with super cool music that isn't stuff that sounds like uh, an old dad yeah. in a garage. Not that there's anything wrong with old dads in garages, but 
Yeah. How did you um, find all these artists at the time? Because there wasn't the internet. Now it's kind of easy. You go to SoundCloud or Twitter or whatever, but you couldn't do that at the time, right? No, at the time it was, I was, I mean, I was and am and remain a music obsessive. I probably buy five to 10 albums every week. Even oh, wow. Now. And nice. I, um, I, I write down everything I listen to. And at the end of the year, I make a big long list of all my favorite things. Like it's just something it's part of who I am. Mm -hmm. So I would go to the music store a couple times a week and just thumb through albums and CDs, talk to music, um, the people that worked in the music store and just like read magazines, like whatever, however I could find out about new artists. So that's kind of how we found people. We would just buy music, listen to CDs and be like, oh, cool. And then look at the back of the CD and to see if they had an email address or a, a way to contact them and then reach out. Yeah. You know, it was very analog. Well, <laughs> nice. Atlanta's such That's... a like hotbed of, of hip hop too, that it probably was easy to like, man, I don't know about easy, but at least there was like so much to pull from. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, D Danger Mouse, who was one of the people yeah. we first started working with, he was a DJ in Athens and I found him through, just his CDs and then reached out and that's how he started doing beats. So yeah, that's certainly that Atlanta thing certainly helped. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but we reached out to artists like drum and bass artists, like DJ Remark and all kinds of other people, you know, all across the globe who had never even heard of Tony. They just knew some American network wants to put their music on. So they were like, Oh, sure. Whatever. You know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 500 bucks. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I'll do it. Definitely. Um, from uh, at cash cash. Uh, what have been some of your most enjoyable experiences on each of the original Tanami productions that you've worked on? Um, I mean, for me, definitely the intruder, the first intruder event where we killed yeah. Tom, just that was fun to work on. It was so, I learned so much about storytelling. I mean, that was the first time I wrote the intruder and that was the first time I wrote mm. a narrative. That's cool and seeing it come to life and working on and i learned a lot about cg and like it was very fun learning experience and very stressful and then igpx our first original series mm -hmm. i i was heavily heavily involved in all aspects of that show and that was one of the most creatively fulfilling things i think i've ever worked on because i was writing i was helping pick music i was sitting in the editing room i was talking to the creator and we were coming up with ideas about you know teams and names and everything else and then i helped direct the voice actors so like from soup to nuts i was pretty heavily involved um and then for the reboot of toonami definitely the the day we did the april fool stunt because that was just amazing to watch the internet yeah you know have this big outpouring of love and affection which was really fun yeah um and then you know what i'm doing now honestly working on original shows and movies which is is just you know it's as anyone who does this will tell you it's one of the more creatively fulfilling things you can do sure yeah yeah that, that's when i feel the happiest when i'm mm -hmm. creatively fulfilled you know um or when i'm helping others to do the same thing you know one of the greatest joys of my job at adult swim for so many years running a department was I had the money and wherewithal to say, Hey, let's work with this animator and have them do a little fun short. Let's call this artist and have them do some music for adults and singles. Let's, you know, part of, and I've heard anecdotally from so many of those artists, the visual ones and the musicians that like that little bit of money or that little bit of support or that little bit of 
uh, recognition they got really helped them, you know, and that's like, that's what I like to hear is being able to say, because that's what this whole project of Tiami is. It's trying to bring people's attention to amazing art and artists so that they can engage with it. it it's really, to me, the greatest joy about the whole job. And uh, one of the things I love the most is when someone like Flying Lotus or Clams Casino or mm -hmm. somebody comes and says to me like, you know, hey, I was like not doing great. I was in a pretty low place and that money helped me wow. get over the hump, you know, and, and I've heard that from a lot of artists whose work I really respect. So to know that I was able to be there for them in a moment where they really needed that help and then they were able to achieve what they achieve just you know just even being a small part of their journey means that like what we did was a net positive for me yeah you know, that's kind of how i look at art and i look at art as a positive force in the world one of the few things that can be a positive force in the world and to the degree that my career has been about anything it's been about trying to bring attention to amazing art and artists because i'm an executive i have a paycheck i get every week if my shows fail, eventually I'll get fired or right. whatever, yeah, sure. but I'm going to work again. And I am not a musician or a painter or an animator who literally lives and dies by what they're doing at that moment and risks everything for that. I'm not that person. I'm better at putting together projects and supporting those people. I am a creative person too, but I haven't staked it all the way they have. And I think it's an incredibly brave thing to do especially in this day and age, which is so harsh and so capitalist and so anti-artist, yeah. like art is not considered a real job when we all know anyone who does it for a living knows it's a it fucking sure real job. But I feel like that's always been considered that way. Or do you, do you feel like this has changed over the couple like decades that you've been doing this? No, it's always been that way. You're right. I think it's gotten a little more industrialized, obviously. <laughs> um, what's sad is that we've evolved as a species. We know so many, so much more about everything. And yet there are some attitudes and some things that don't evolve with us like they should. Oh, and yeah. we should all recognize that everyone needs to be creative yeah. in some way. Every single person on earth, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't say because someone's an accountant, they're not creative. They're just not creative at that job, you know, or they might be a creative accountant, whatever. Yeah, we yeah. all have, we all have access to creativity of some, in some form, because it's as necessary to being human as breathing. Totally. So it's, it's, I just feel like, you know, it's a version of just being able to problem solve, you know, and that's ultimately what it comes down to. And like, I've always yeah. said that creativity is a muscle. Like it, it's not this, magical thing that you just have and you just like you're, no it's hard you're work born with. yeah it is. you gotta work and you gotta do yep. research and, and train but that's it. the thing we are not given time to work on our creativity right. because if it doesn't directly give you money right away our society is like why are you wasting yeah. your time with that hurry up and get and that so i'm lucky job. yeah i'm very privileged to be in, and most executives are they just don't recognize it because most executives are assholes which is just i'm very privileged to be in this position where I can bet on people and take risks with them, yeah. but I'm getting a paycheck every week and I'm getting, um, yeah, healthcare and my family's mm -hmm. taken care of, you know? So I try to never forget that. I never lose sight of that yeah. um, because I, I think it's one of the things that if more people did, there would be less 
asshole executives. Yeah. <laughs> do you, you know, less cliche executives, you know? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, like, do you um, wish that there were more uh, people that are like artists and, you know, more traditional creatives um, that had an interest in getting into that sort of executive work and kind of going over to that I mean, side? it's hard it's hard work to do it's often not rewarding it often it also requires a skill set of being able to disseminate information being able to know when to pick and choose your battles you have to have really good people skills and know how to get along with all kinds of people and how to pitch people and how to not pitch people when the mood isn't there oh, you have to have a good sense of how things are going on the ground it's not for everyone it's very hard and Frankly, I will say there are actually a lot of people like me in the entertainment industry. They're the people getting a lot of these movies that people like, like the Green Knight or whatever made. It takes someone like me at those places to get those projects done because it's not the person at the top. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not the person at the bottom because they don't have any power. There is always a producer behind every great film in the mm -hmm. world. There was a producer solving problems fighting stupid people, mm -hmm. getting money, scrambling, supporting the artist, arguing with the artist when they were doing the wrong thing or sometimes <laughs> when they're doing the right thing. But like, they just aren't, everybody's more excited about the front of the line talent for obvious reasons and the director for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. But there are tons of people like me out there um, doing good work. They just, this job, the one, the best thing about this job is you're kind of in the shadows. Sure. You know? When I'm you talk, right? <laughs> Most people that Usually, are in this yeah. job are. Um, when you talk about the people skills that you need, like as an executive to keep like pitching and convincing and like reading the room and all that, is this something that you feel like you you, you learned a little bit in college? Is it something that you feel you were just kind of you kind of know how to feel people like um what's your take on that i i, I was i was raised in a um abusive household so i had to have my antenna up for any change mm. in the atmosphere you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah. and i also had Damn. to know when to just like keep my mouth shut stay out, of, mm -hmm. stay out of things so like i was raised with a high degree of emotional intelligence because it was a survival mechanism mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it just so happens I ended up in a field where that exact skill set became something that I could use to my advantage because not everybody had that level of emotional intelligence and maybe intuition about something. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, That's amazing. So I just, I, I think it's just a matter of, I was like built in a lab to do this yeah. exact thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's a, yeah. everything you've said. It's like you, it sounds like you just kind of, you know, initially kind of fell into this just through circumstance, but it's like everything that that you're interested in has all become such a crucial part of what your job is and why you're good at it. Because it's like you mentioned the albums and, you know, that you're interested in, in music. And it's mm -hmm. just it's it's crazy to me that like how how these kinds of things happen, because for sure you might have not fallen into this you know like that none of these things might have for existed. sure yeah and, totally and, totally and like I, I i see your role as like as a curator it's almost like an art gallery owner you know somebody that is like finding like you've said like giving opportunities to artists and collecting these works of art in a play in a way that's presentable and like marketable yeah and, um 
that's so important. Like that's, that's, that's so important. And, um, we also talked to Phil Rendo about similar things. Cause that's, you know, a lot of what he's been doing. Yeah. And, um, I, I just wish there were more people. I personally wish there were more people who would see the potential they have in themselves to help others and for sure move into for those sure. kinds of roles, you know, because it's like, I mean, it's, yeah, it's easily the most fulfilling thing about my whole life, about my job. I mean, when I've had people tell me at uh, cons like, hey, Toonami really was there for me during a really dark time in my life. I would have killed myself if yeah. I hadn't seen that that Tom thing about not giving yeah. up. Or, you yeah, know, yeah. things like that. You never even contemplate that your work will have that effect. But that kind of stuff allows me the freedom to know, like, no matter what happens in my career, if I quit tomorrow, if I die tomorrow, whatever, I've done good things for some people and that's mm -hmm. all I really wanted to do on earth. So like I've done it I and I, I'm going to keep doing it, but like I've done the thing that was most important to me to do with my that's awesome. time and energy and my, what I'm given. Yeah. And so, you know, the other thing is you have to have people like Lazo or Sean Akins who take bets on you and give you the freedom to do some of these things that aren't the things that everyone else is doing so that you can find the way towards your best work, your best self. Mm -hmm. And the great beauty of being able to work at one place for 25 years, which nobody gets to do anymore, is I was given the time and the runway to figure out and build relationships with like-minded people to create a network where we could create all this wonderful stuff. That takes time. Most people now leave their job after two years. Mm -hmm. So it becomes much harder to be able to have a stable environment where you can kind of grow things literally like a greenhouse, you know? Mm. Um, and mm. that's what Adult Swim was for, for its whole time of its existence so far. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and I can say like, just from personal experience, like the, the work that you and, and your team put in, it's like so formative. It, it It's such a distillation of like all the things that, I don't know, I, I thought were cool, but I think it, I like, learned that they were cool you know it's like i learned all these things <laughs> through toonami and and then adult swim and and you know the the underground hip-hop the i the like the big three for me is like uh toonami lincoln park and you know i don't know what else but like it, it was like that vibe that really cool right. early 2000s vibe um and we have a question here from mike and murdoch uh, you've been responsible for so much programming that inspired a generation of kids to become creators. What show or series are you most proud to have brought to the masses and why? I mean, um, you know, of what I'm most proud of, I'm proud of the shows that, that are originals that I made. But but beyond that, um, you know, obviously Dragon Ball Z has got to oh, sure. be one, one of them. I mean, it look, a lot of people have said too, like, well, that would show would have blown up anyway. Maybe it would have. I don't know. But I do know that it, at the time where we started showing it, it was airing in scattered markets, mm -hmm. certain cable areas. It was airing all messed up and it had not caught on for a couple of years, which is why we were able to get it in the first place because mm -hmm. it was more reasonably priced. And I know that once we got it and started making a big deal out of how great it was, literally calling it the greatest action cartoon ever made over and over, that it mm -hmm. blew up. And that alone, Dragon Ball's, arrival and blowing up in the u.s is a seismic event in anime yeah. fandom that we were a key key part of so i gotta say 
Dragon Ball is probably the one. Dragon Ball and Naruto to a lesser mm-hmm. degree. I think Naruto mm-hmm. really would have maybe blown up completely without us, but it, we helped it a lot, you know, um, which is why it was so ironic. After Toonami was canceled, people were like, Naruto killed Toonami. And I'm like, no, oh, guys. <laughs> no, guys. <laughs> Naruto was the, re- yeah. the only reason we were on for like the last two years of our first run because we had Naruto. It wasn't, it wasn't Naruto that killed Toonami. It was executive whim that killed Toonami. Does it bother you that when like you see that sort of feedback online from people that have no clue how things actually happen is it easy to shrug off or does it you know does it get under your skin i would say it took me a long time to learn the skill but i learned that nobody knows anything yeah everybody talks like they do know something and sometimes i've literally had people tell me well that's not what that is and i'm like yeah it is i was there i did it i made it and they're like no that's (laughs) how i remember it trying to gas you I'm like, you don't remember it because your the brain plays tricks on you yeah. and you were a child. I was an adult. I'm an adult now. You know, I learned I learned that to some degree there's no point. The only time that it really bothers me is when people assign ill intent. Like, oh yeah. We, oh. Like we purposefully tanked a show yeah, or we yeah, purposefully yeah. lied about like people when they say we lie about things, I'm always like, dude, I don't have any reason to lie. And I also I do like I don't, we don't lie to our audience and we never have and we never will. And it's a line we would never cross because we don't get paid to work on Toonami. We get paid for other stuff we do on our job. Like Toonami, we started doing in 2012. They didn't give us any extra money. Hey, you're going to now do this thing that requires you to work very hard every single week. And they haven't made it part of like what we get for our bonus or our goals or anything else. They're just like, Here's a budget for you to use for Toonami, not to put in your pocket, but to make shit. Yeah. And that's how it's been since day one. So like <laughs> yeah. since, since the Adult Swim one, you know, for the, the Cartoon Network version, we did got salaries for working on Toonami. Sure. So I just love the idea of somebody saying, no, I don't think that that's how it happened. <laughs> People do that no, all the time. You're or, wrong. They, or they tell me I'm wrong about like why a show did or didn't uh... do well or that, or that it did or didn't do well. No, it didn't do well. Uh... Like, uh, that's just uh, animation dude, fans. The network huh? that yeah, the network that aired it told me that it did well and they want more. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, that's that's all I need to hear to know uh, I'm good. It's I... kind of funny to I don't know what I think about it. It's just like the it's so absurd, you know, like the absurdity is just funny. It's just I mean, like, corona, yeah. corona, what coronavirus kind of just shows you what I already was putting up with, which is yeah, mm-hmm. people believe what they want to believe. It's their own reality, yeah. Were, yeah they construct their own reality yeah yeah it's frustrating but yeah i it's the more i the deeper i get into the industry the the more it's frustrating the the rift between like what what we all have to deal with and what people think we deal with or how the you know how all this works and it's just like oh god if you only knew (laughs) like if you only knew how hard everyone's yeah everyone's assumption of why something happens on a project is almost always it's always wrong if you're not if you're not actually yeah The speculation mm-hmm. is silly. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, from at Jodero6, who was the creative genius who came up with the individual Toonami intros, and how did those brainstorming sessions go? They were so creative and hyped, like DBZ, Tenshimuyo, Gundam Wing, etc. And I agree, those were sick as hell. Those were done as a result of the fact that anime opens were two minutes long. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And we didn't have the time to not cut them out because we had commercials we had to put in mm-hmm. there and commercial time in Japan 
the average half hour show in Japan is 24 and a half minutes of content. The average commercial, the average half hour show in the US on broadcast television is 22 minutes of actual show. So there's two minutes of extra, two and a half extra minutes in every broadcast of any Japanese show. So they were like, you got to cut, you got to cut something. We didn't want to cut the actual show. So it was like, okay, let's cut the ending and make it faster and let's cut the open. And this was before the rise of the internet where the anime open became a thing that anime fans love to, you know, obsess over. And there were multiple opens for multiple shows and new premieres of new songs and all that. So at the time it was like, well, we need an open for the shows. Okay, we'll cut a quick little 15 second thing. And that's why those were born. And those were all our editors just taking the music and taking the show and just chopping them up into what they thought would be cool little montages, you know. They were great. Um, they were they were yeah, yeah they, were... they captured the feel so well of what you're about to watch and it's just like and they're all burned into my memory so distinctly. They're like Krillin's like everyone get down. Like it's like I can, yeah, I can, yeah. yeah, I can never unhear that exact line read. Um, overall editors just having favorite moments from the sure. show as they clip them and just put them together. Yeah, they're all we have some really great editors. Yeah. No, you definitely did. Uh, this next question is a little loaded, so you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But uh, you make a lot of posts about funding the production of more anime, despite there being a rampant overproduction problem in Japan, causing delays and even workplace injuries. Uh, what steps, if any, are you taking to alleviate these issues in your productions? And then they say, to clarify, what steps are you taking to ensure that everyone involved in your productions is being given enough time and resources to perform their best work without causing schedule issues? And especially undo mental or physical harm to themselves or other people. So it's a it's a yeah. big question. I mean, I think it's a legitimate question that anime fans are finally getting um wise to, which is that the, it's kinda it's good. It's a good thing, yeah. I mean the anime industry look, anime is cheaper for a reason because they mm -hmm. don't pay their labor. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And anime is done faster for a reason. They force crunch on people. Mm -hmm. And this is part of that industry and has been. And the overproduction I, I hesitate to call it overproduction because it's not overproduction it's literally a saturation mm -hmm. of production mm -hmm. because there's only so many bodies that you can have to make a show like at a certain point there can't be any more shows mm -hmm. until more people learn how to draw um mm -hmm. so it's really more that there's so much money out there that stu it's studios are trying to if you see a studio green lighting too many shows they're probably stretching their people too thin hmm. as a as people who bring the money to those studios the things we do is basically say look we want you to take the time you need to do this right so give us a realistic timeline don't just tell us you know we can work it out by x when knowing you're gonna have to kill your your team to get it there you know what i mean and also making sure they're giving us a realistic budget if they give us a bid that's so low it's like well how the hell are you going to pay people to do that you know that's really all you can do as an outsider you can't force like i can't go to mappa and force them to right. behave differently than they choose to behave i cannot give them my business or i sure. could you know but I, I use uzumaki as a good example uzumaki is still not done it's been four years mm -hmm. it's four episodes of television it was a low budget show, but we also said, take whatever time you need. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, we can't always say that, but we can definitely say to them in good faith, if you tell us this show is going to take four years to make, as long as it looks amazing and is a great show, 
we will realistically put that down and that's when the show comes out they set the timeline not us that's great i don't go to a studio and say i need this show in two years and they say well two years i mean geez we're gonna have to you know really kill ourselves to get that and go well take it or leave it that's just not how i when you go to a studio you go to them and say who do you think should who do who makes sense for this project how can we work together on this how much money do you think it needs to cost to be good and how long do you need to do it and they come back to us and say here's what we need and we try to meet in the middle certainly there are going to be some shows where for some reason through mismanagement or through unrealistic timelines set at the beginning that doesn't happen but again all you can really do is sort of try to keep them to reasonable deadlines and reasonable budgets which if you work in the industry long enough you know what a reasonable budget for a half hour anime show is and you know what one isn't and so you know it's like netflix people get mad at netflix for that and netflix pays really fucking well like way more than we can afford they overpay for everything and that's actually part of the problem because that gold rush makes greedy studio owners or greedy publishers or you know whoever say oh god we're just going to take the job well we don't have enough people we'll worry about it later we'll hire more people if we need them we'll send it to you know we'll send it to the philippines we'll send it to china mm-hmm. to, at the end you know which happens a ton yeah but that's mm-hmm. actually individual greed and i'm not i'm not trying to put the blame back on the industry itself i'm just saying it's endemic to the industry itself and so if you want major reform on that level it has to come from the japanese government who only recently started forcing anime studios to pay overtime wow oh wow so like you know i heard i heard a a studio person being like oh well now we got to pay overtime when people stay all night (laughs) like well (laughs) well, yeah that's kind of yeah you know but like and again it's just i think it's just way more complicated than most people understand and certainly if you're not in the industry and you're not even a person who lives in the country you don't really know you're just basing it on what you know about labor practices which of course makes sense but it's just a whole nother ball of wax societally as well yeah you know because japanese japanese don't complain about things to their bosses Mm -hmm. they don't have the american workplace culture of i'm not happy I want to strike or I'm not happy. I'm going to complain to my boss or let's put pressure on our bosses to, they don't do that. They just don't. Mm -hmm. And that affects their work expectations. So it's like, it's just a really naughty issue. But like I said, what I do is what I can do. I try to meet them where they're at, take them at their word. And there are plenty of shows. In fact, I'm doing one right now where I was told it's a four year turnaround. Okay. I will go back and tell my bosses we're going to spend this money and you're not going to see any result for four years. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's not an easy sell, but it is what it is. You can't, you can't force people to do something they can't, they physically can't do. Yeah. And it yeah. takes time to make it's, good things. I, I it's like still made by hand, you know, it's still, yeah, it's yeah. still human labor. You just can't, you can't make it go faster than it can go. That's one of those mm-hmm. things that where people have a misconception again of like, I actually think South Park ruined that for a lot of things where it's like, for sure, you know, it's sure. like, oh, they made this in a week. Ah, like every yeah. show is made in a week. It's like, oh boy, yeah. are you wrong? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Non-animation executives, even to this day, think animation is some easy, quickie thing because it's cheaper. Live action is so much more expensive. 
they assume because animation's cheaper, that means it's easier. It's not mm -hmm. easier. In fact, it's harder in many ways, but it is cheaper by a, I mean, the average anime half hour is 10% of what an average live action American half hour of television costs. It's probably less than half of what the average half hour of American animation right. costs. Mm. So it's going to lead the wrong person who doesn't know anything about it to be like, well, this shit's easy. That's why it's so cheap. Yeah. It's like, no, it's cheap. Cause there's, it's literally all just inside of a monitor, you know, mm. like <laughs> it's literally just human labor. It shouldn't be that cheap, but it is. Yeah. So anyway, that it's, like I said, we, I could talk about that for hours. It's a valid issue that I think anime fans, especially in the last five to 10 years has become a big talking point. Um, you know, among fandom and among sites like Anime News Network, because it's like, you know, you see well, people overworked. And there's there's like access to information now, like with the internet, there's a lot of Japanese animation artists on Twitter. Yeah, so you just need to, use, I mean, you just, <laughs> if you speak Japanese, you can find more information sure, than you could sure. before. It's like more available. Oh yeah, I've seen, I've seen artists on certain shows complaining they didn't have enough time or they didn't have enough, you know, like, Mm -hmm. And that's probably their way of trying to pressure their, um, you know, their studio to like kind of get control of things a little bit better and then, mm -hmm. you know, pay people what they deserve and give them more time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also in like, there is a culture of like pride in the work. Like I was watching that series Manben about yeah. uh, mangaka artists uh, and mm -hmm. showing their process and their days are ex they're extremely long i don't think yeah. people yeah. in the west work that hours that are nearly as long um no yeah we're i mean we're we're our society we work way too much nowhere near as like europe i think has the right idea yeah Let, mm -hmm. you know but uh J japan is is even more you are your job and mm -hmm. you are you are going to do your thing over and over and over as long as it takes until you get great at it mm -hmm. and that dedication is what's expected of you and that yeah. and your dedication to work is what's expected to, of you which is why people die at their desks in japan all the time mm -hmm. if i grew up in japan i'd be dead right now i'd be killed over on a desk i would have worked myself to death i mm -hmm. almost do it now but if I lived there, part of that culture, I guarantee I would be a casualty of that. Mm -hmm. That's why the, that at the same time, that's what makes it so easy to overwork people in that industry because mm -hmm. the work ethic is like, well, you, you know, I'll never forget the first time I toured an animation studio. I don't even remember what studio it was, but they were like, there were people sleeping on the floor in sleeping bags under their desk mm -hmm. and eating like ramen from the machine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, what is going on? And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, they have, there's a, they have to turn in an episode on Monday. So they're just rendering. <laughs> I was just like, what? That sucks. Like, it's like that episode of, um, uh, it's, it's not perfect blue. What's the episode from Satoshi Kon where, where they actually show uh, production? It's an episode about product animation production in Japan. Yeah, um, it might have been Par Paranoia Agent. Or yeah, yes, I think it's yes, Paranoia, yeah. Paranoia Agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is such a yeah great episode I mean, really crazy yeah i mean but that that was a real I, i'll never forget that was very shocking to me as an american i was like they're sleeping there he was like sleeping next to a bank of like uh hard drives you know like i was just like oh yeah I, yeah there i remember at a job i had here in in mobile games there was like one guy who slept 
at the studio for the night and everyone showed up and was like what are you doing here and he's like oh i just i like slept here because i just like had to get all this work done we were like don't do that again <laughs> like it was like yeah. such an aggressive yeah. like don't ever do that again that is like not what we expect from you and i i mean there's definitely places that still probably wouldn't discourage that unfortunately even in america but it's yeah. nice that there's at least that st like please for sure don't do that we used to, I mean, that happened back. I never did it because I'm not wired that way. But we, our, our CG guys would do it back in the day at Toonami. It was just like the normal thing. It was like, oh, yeah, man, I got to get down to the deadline until it's due and really stay all night and keep an eye on it. Like, it was just part of the thinking back then. Yeah. Now, it, it, you would never see anyone do it now, not commonly. Yeah. Do you think there was a shift in that kind of, like, work culture from back in the 90s to now like was it did it feel a little more scrappy and kind of um we're all in this together or you know you know what i mean like was there sort of this feeling yeah. of yeah or has that changed at all it was both i mean it was like it was both i say both meaning it was good and bad right. there was like yes there was a lot of freedom it was very scrappy it was definitely more like you know it just felt like the possibilities were endless right. and but at the same time, there was way more of a of room to be abused by your coworkers in terms of sure. uh, women being hit on or mm. made to feel uncomfortable in the workplace or uh, people being berated and called names or, you know, like it, it definitely was an unhealthier place to work in a lot of ways. And then in a lot of other ways, it was a better place to work. Um, because it was more free and more wild and you could kind of felt like you could you felt like you were making some exciting things and there were a lot of possibilities. So it was both, you know, and now it's more settled and I think certainly more safe. Mm -hmm. um, it's just also a little bit more of a business and a little bit less of like a pure joy of creating kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it's a, it was a trade-off, you know, um, and I would not really blame anybody for proof for just for saying it was one way or the other because it was everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just kind of something I think we've been witnessing just in America's history, it's like things were better for this group of people, you know, Right. but, right. And, and it was really bad for everyone else. And then when everyone, every, those, that group of people complains that things are different and it's not like how it used to be. It's like, yeah, but it's yeah. like much better for everyone else. So it's, yeah, yeah. I can see it. I can see how that applies to animation as well. Um, I mean, it definitely does. We had a question from at ambient virus. How much longer do you think TV can hold out given the decline in ratings over the years? And do you think at some point streaming ratings will be made public similar to Nielsen ratings? No, streaming ratings will never be made public. When we all collectively decided to accept Netflix not sharing mm. their data or oh only God. sharing it extremely selectively, we the, that is That's over it. now. There will never be public sharing of that information again unless it is to the benefit of the company sharing it. Right. Honestly, they were they were just the smartest people i mean they were just smarter they were like why the fuck should we tell anybody what do they know we'll just tell them whatever we want <laughs> and they'll just shut the fuck up and guess what everyone just happily agreed to it so i mean that's why they shut down box office mojo because the studios were like we don't want everybody knowing how much money a movie made oh, so wow. now nobody so now nobody knows now it's all just guesswork because it that fog of war is beneficial to the company it's not beneficial of, to them to have full transparency. Sure. Do, do you think uh, maybe because we've seen with Facebook now metaverse that the, the governments are kind of trying to 
crack down on that. Do you feel like there could be a possibility in, in like the future that maybe the government could be like, okay, like you guys are producing a lot of media. It is influencing culture to some extent. We, maybe we want to keep an eye on, on that and we have to share numbers or whatever. Like I mean, Maybe a different government, but not our government. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think so. I think that ship has sailed. And I also mm. think that, look, America's run by corporations. And I mean mm -hmm. that in the, in the purest sense of the word run literally our government everything mm -hmm. is run by corporations yep. mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. anything that doesn't benefit corporations probably not going to happen and mm -hmm. amazon or netflix was just first to figure out why should we share this data with people why should we pay a company like nielsen to have a system that we all buy into that doesn't necessarily benefit us when we can just say whatever we want and uh, as far as whether or not broadcast networks are going to survive, I mean, I really don't know. I know that there's been an incredibly steep drop off as more and more people have gotten into streaming and more and more kids grow up watching YouTube and Twitch and then move into Netflix mm -hmm. and Amazon and never. I mean, why would you interact with a commercial and you can't control when you're watching it, rewinding or fast forwarding? You know, like right. that's a live stream. Television is a live stream. Now people only want to watch live streams when it's music, live event, or like a band or something that they can't get that just isn't the same if it's not live. Right. So I think television will survive. I mean, the way people say CDs are dead, they still sell yeah. millions of dollars worth of CDs every year. So to some degree, things like vinyl's dead, CDs are dead, uh, no one buys digital music anymore. Those are fallacies created by the people that want you to do whatever the new thing is. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. There's plenty of people buying CDs. There's plenty of people buying vinyl. There's plenty of people. It's just not anywhere near the industry it used to be. So I don't think television is ever going to be the same. I don't think it's ever going to be what it was, but I think it'll survive in some form for sure. There's still going to be money to be made. And as long as there's money to be made, there will be television. Yeah. I just people... don't still listen to the radio like i guess v, like who are you what is that what's radio <laughs> in the car is that like spotify <laughs> no like okay okay for real just sidebar every time because i uber a lot because i don't drive and i'm telling you 70 percent of the time it's not spotify yeah it's, um you know it's radio k earth 101 but i don't i don't I, I i don't think networks can i don't think networks can compete with streamers now i think we're yeah. i think we're having a very hard time and i think it's going to get worse before it gets better but i still don't think networks are going to disappear i just think it's going to be a different thing they'll have a you know they're operating they'll be operating at a different scale and luckily i happen to work for one of the few corporations that has a bunch of networks and a streaming service right. mm -hmm. all bundled together that can all kind of help each other so if that happens you know then i don't think there's any reason for adult swim for instance to go anywhere yeah um because we'll share our shows with hbo max and vice mm -hmm. versa yeah that's my hope yeah um, that's also my hope because yeah. <laughs> i yeah, have ratings. hbo max yeah but ratings <laughs> ratings aren't coming back ratings aren't coming uh, back yeah no. we had a lot of various questions about hbo max and i i'm i think i'm gonna try to just sum them all up with um like how has that affected your job and um having this specific streaming platform that is dedicated for warner brothers stuff has that made things easier or has it kind of bottlenecked things at all or what's your take on that it hasn't bottlenecked anything i mean it's a company priority obviously because they're trying to build a service that competes with netflix and disney which they're largely doing yeah mm -hmm. but 
So obviously that's going to be the company's as a whole, the whole company's priority in terms of developing new content and money. Like that's got to be. And that's, I don't think there's anyone at the company who doesn't go, yeah, well, that makes sense. Like, you know, um, as far as whether it's made things easier, it has in some ways. I mean, you know, look, we got a bunch of DC movies and shows right. on the air in the last couple of years. We never would have had that if there wasn't a new sort of spirit of cooperation yeah. with the company where we're all recognizing like, look, if a DC movie does well and then it goes to the service and does well, and then there's a series from the animation group that does well, like that benefits all of us. So let's all work together and support each other. We never did that before. It was very siloed. So for me, I think it's actually great that HBO Max is here because we all feel like finally our company is doing the thing we wish they would have done five to 10 years ago, which is create a streaming service to compete with Netflix mm -hmm. and Disney and Amazon because Warner Brothers has so much great IP mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. some of the best in the world. So, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of us internally were like, why don't we have a streaming service yet? You know, mm -hmm. so all of us are kind of relieved. And in fact, my current job is making stuff for HBO Max, mm -hmm. making stuff for Warner Brothers Animation, making stuff for Adult mm -hmm. Swim. So I now work for all of those entities and never has it felt more like we're all sort of rowing in the same direction i'm i'm actually thrilled with it yeah are you uh are you guys like open to original ip still or are you trying to largely focus on existing things existing licenses it's it's both i mean i think it'd be stupid if you look at what literally the whole industry is doing from yeah. netflix to to disney to you know obviously ip is the current war of the future you know like, yeah yeah it really is. but i think it'd be stupid not to develop all the rich ip that's at warner brothers but at the same time there is a commitment to do original stuff for sure like cartoon network will always focus on original stuff that's just sure. and so will adult so will adult swim for the most part now there are still opportunities you know if someone's gonna say do you want to do a lord of the rings movie i'm not gonna say no <laughs> right you, know? you don't say no <laughs> right but but at the same time i do think there will always be a need for original i think actually you're gonna see us doing it way more than like disney oh yeah know, disney mm -hmm. disney's very very devoted into mining their ip and keeping people from birth to death in their ecosystem yeah and they're very very good at it um you know that's like their mm -hmm. specialty yeah. we're not trying to do that necessarily and that's why people bag on like um dc movies and stuff i actually love the dc movies and then i don't love them all meaning they're all good because some of them are absolute garbage <laughs> yeah but, <laughs> but i love that they are all totally different takes that they give the movie to the reins of the creator and they let them have their vision and maybe their vision isn't a vision i like but it is a real vision. It's not like a mm. content plan as set forth on a piece sure. of paper by a company, which Marvel's Marvel's movies are never terrible and they're almost never great. They're always at a yeah. baseline of like, yeah, pretty fun. Yeah, pretty fun. Mm -hmm. DC's yeah. movies are at least trying for something where even if you think they're garbage, like it was somebody really believing. They're swinging, man. Yeah, they're not going to. You know, and so yeah. I just like that. I think it's chaotic for sure. But like, I really like that it's like people's visions being doubled down on. To me, that's like what it's all about. Like, that's what I do. So yeah, maybe that vision isn't going to work out, but at least it wasn't some vanilla garbage nobody's going to remember in a year. Like I just, yeah, you know, that's it... maybe my personal take, you know. 
it really does shine like i've been watching peacemaker recently that was like um i think the finale is premiering next week and it's really fun because you're like oh i feel like i'm watching okay it's an ip but i I feel like I'm watching something that's more personal because it's like, oh, I, I don't know exactly when the next beat is going to land or like this, the act structure sure. is a little bit more uh, flexible. So you're kind of like a little bit more on your toes because you're because you're not in that like sure. perfectly um, like plotted out world plotted out. Yeah. Roller coaster mm-hmm. where you know exactly when which, you know what is coming when anyway and I, and I, really think, fun. I, I think you can make great movies in either scenario but i it's like when you look at like look at it's not a superhero but like look at macbeth like the the new macbeth that just came out that was uh joel cohen's yep. or ethan cohen's mm-hmm. macbeth mm-hmm. macbeth has been told thousands of times over the years you know there have there are tons and tons of different sure, versions yeah, of yeah. macbeth yet mm-hmm. that version of macbeth obviously was a personal statement by the artist who made it so you can certainly tell personal stories even within archetypal characters like Batman, Superman. You can tell amazingly personal stories if you're allowed to. Mm-hmm. If, if you're not allowed to or if you're being told, well, it has to fit into this larger thing. If you push it too much in one direction, it doesn't slot in with the larger vision. Then that's where I think it can get flattened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about your role with music um but i wanted to get to dig into that a little bit more um what was sort of the the inception for like the adult swim singles program and and um all the work you've done with with various hip-hop artists like killer mike etc then that was basically so the music thing started with tsunami and kept going as we reached out to different artists then when i started doing adult swim on air i started reaching out to more artists because we needed music for our air so we started having all these great relationships with artists and then that led to the danger doom album mm-hmm. it was really after that that we were like well we can do these music projects that people like so i had this idea of you know it was actually uh, one of the people who worked at the label with me amantha walden she was like we want to do a weekly single series but they wanted to do it for sale like sell songs and I was like, well, I'm into that, but like, let's do it as a free giveaway and let's get a sponsor to pay for it. And that way we give money to the artists. They get a little bit of exposure. We get a little bit of cool added to us, you know, yeah. and we're, we're promoting these artists. So again, it was like my philosophy of pay the artists, promote them somewhat, don't own the track, let them own the track and just use our platform to push them out there. And hopefully more people hear their music and go, wow, Adult Swim brought me that cool thing. Adult Swim's cool. That's it very simple formula Hmm. so it did really well and it just led to us doing singles for like 11 years or 10 years however long we did singles for and hundreds of songs and hundreds of artists and through all of those different relationships you start finding people that are simpatico like flying lotus or like killer mike and lp and then the killer mike and lp thing was literally just it was like i had done some stuff with killer mike we had gotten along really well he did a song for the frisky dingo Mm -hmm. He did a song for the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie. And then he was the voice of our Boondocks promos for season three. And oh, shit, he, was, he yeah. came to me and just, yeah, he was. And he just came to me and said, Hey man, I really like working with you guys. And I know that I could make a record with you. That's just total creative freedom and wouldn't sound like anything else. And I want you to help produce the record with me because I know I love the way you think. Mm-hmm. And 
I just know you have a great ear for beats. And, and I said, cool. So then we started talking about like, what are your influences? Like, what kind of record do you want to make that you haven't made yet? And he said, I want to make my America's most wanted. I want to make my ice cube album. Mm -hmm. And my favorite rap album is ice cubes death certificate. And I said, well, that's funny because death certificate, which is the one that came out right after America's most wanted is my favorite rap record. And, and he was like, well, shit. So I said, if you want America's most wanted, that's like bomb squad production. And there's only one artist I know right now who's making music that's similar to Bomb Squad production, and that's LP. Mm -hmm, Have you heard of this mm -hmm. guy, LP? And he had heard of him, but he hadn't heard any of his music. So I played a bunch of his music, and he was like, yo, this is crazy. And I said, I'll reach out to him. So he, L had heard of Mike. He kept up on all Southern rap, and he was like, yeah, I'll write some beats for him. Fuck it. Yeah. And that's magic and that was just magic yeah they just started vibing and they basically met and literally they like it was watching it was like watching two people fall in love they like yeah. literally <laughs> fell in love right when they met and they they immediately vibed and when when l left and flew back to new york mike called me and was like he's got to do the whole album and i was like he's doing his own album he doesn't have time to do the whole album and mike was like fuck that we're gonna bother him until he just does it and i was like okay l, l can be pretty prickly but okay and so we just took turns bothering L, literally bugging the shit out of him until he said, fine, I'll do the whole album. Damn it. <laughs> you do my album. Now I got to do this album. You know, and and uh, we flew Killer Mike up to New York and had some sessions there. And then we flew him through L back to Atlanta. So it was like three sessions total to get the album knocked down. And then L took a couple weeks to mix it and we mastered it in Atlanta and, and released it and it did well. It didn't do amazingly well, but it did, it did fine. And it got really good reviews. And um, they went on tour to support L's album, which came out the day before and, and his album. And uh, I believe L was opening for Mike <laughs> mm -hmm. and they, they had one song on the album that they did together. It was basically a pre run the jewels song before run the jewels where L rapped and Mike rapped and it was L's beat. And they had such a butane? fun time on, yeah, yeah, exactly. And as the, and they had such a fun time on tour, that they called me and they were like, "Yeah, we think we're gonna just record a whole other album together, but we're gonna be like a group, like old school rap group." And I was in Barcelona, filming something for Primavera Festival, and Mike was there performing, and I was recording Mike, and we were hanging out, and he was like. Yo, I keep telling L we gotta call as well as run the duels. L thinks he doesn't <laughs> like the name. I keep telling him, man. Mm. Um, and they form Run the Jewels. They record their first album. And while they're they told me they're recording it, I said, Well, you know what? We want to license that album right now before it's even out. So I'm gonna give you money right now. You can use to make the record. And when you're done with it, all you have to do is let us use the music on air. Oh still do whatever want with it and so for the for all four run the jewels albums so when they went to do the second one they said we're going to do another one and i said let's do the same deal i'll give you x amount wow. of money ahead of time super smart huh. so we kind of funded the albums you know as they came out um so that just led to so many amazing creative things that happened but again it was because i was given the freedom and the runway to do the singles program and i got to do it for a long time and build relationships that slowly led to better things that led to this opportunity and it was because i was given that runway and i was able to form a relationship with mike and l that led to that point yeah um, taking advantage mm -hmm. of those opportunities 
yeah those little strings but that's that that's how all that music stuff happened was really because we just wanted adult swim to sound different from everything else and we wanted to make sure that our music stood out yeah. and so the bump you know the bump the bump editors and writers pick the songs and i would go out and they would too find some music and I would go out and make deals with labels and find artists and give them artists. And they would sometimes write a bump promoting somebody's album in exchange for us getting to use the music, you know? So it was like, it just was a very organic thing. And it was all based in adults and wanting to feel different than any other network. Yeah. I love everything those two have done. I was listening to rap music yesterday at the gym. It's a very good, uh, working out it album. It is <laughs> big uh -huh. high energy. Big high beast energy. comes on, man, and I'm lifting heavy. Yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Creative Block and how it feels for yeah. you and how you sort of cope with it. Okay, so this is the weird thing. I know the show's called Creative. That's fine. Block. <laughs> That's just a clever name. I don't I don't really get Creative Block. Okay. Nice. I have, I have friends that have gotten it. I have coworkers and artists, friends that I've worked with. I can tell you the closest thing I have to creative block is when I'm trying to work on an idea and I'm not happy with the result. So I'm one of those people that when I write something or when I come up with an idea, usually what I came up with very quickly, the first blush thing is the thing I feel is the best. The mm -hmm. more I overthink it, the more I water it down. Usually my first non second guest idea is my best idea. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, if I do that and I still think it's not working, instead of trying to work it, work it, work it, work it until I feel it works, I just walk away. Hmm. I just okay. walk away and come back a day or two later. And so in some cases, I did, I'm not even thinking about it. I just put it away. And then I come back and re-experience it and see if it makes sense. And sometimes I come back and go, what is this garbage? And just delete uh -huh. it. And sometimes I go, oh, this is fine. What was I, why was I second guessing? And then sometimes I go, oh, you know what I needed? I needed this. Or I'll say, you know what? I want to share this with a friend and see what they think and get their opinion, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But like, that's as close as I get. I pretty much have ideas every day, all day, and always have my whole life. Uh, I've never, never, I've, I've, I will sometimes have a hard, I'll have a hard time figuring out how to get from my idea to the reality, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Especially when like drawing, you know, one thing I noticed when I went to art school before I moved over to becoming a film major, I started as an illustration major oh, okay. and I'll never forget looking at the person next to me. And I was like, this person is an absolute fucking moron and their art is 10 times better than mine will ever be. They don't have a <laughs> thought in their head. And they're going to be a, they'll be a better artist than I am for the rest of their life. Like no doubt in my mind. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know what? I'm second guessing every line I put on paper and it's warping the image I have. The perfect image I have in my head is not translating to paper because it, I have A, my skill isn't developed enough and B, I'm second guessing everything I'm doing and changing it. And this person next to me may be a moron, but the idea is forming in their head and they're not second guessing themselves. They have a channel from their brain to their hand and mm -hmm. they're able to just realize that vision of, what they're trying to draw and I couldn't get there. And I was like, that for me was a revelation. It was like, I shouldn't do this. I, I can draw. I'm never going to be as good as a lot of the people in this room because they have something I don't, you know? And that's when I moved over to film and video. Yeah. And 
obviously that decision worked out for me but i could i still draw and i can still can draw but my art like anything else is always better when i'm just doodling and not thinking about it i have a whole notebook filled with weird ass doodles of things and there's some good little drawings in there and then there's a bunch of garbage and i just don't as it should be i'm just yeah yeah i'm just barfing out what comes out of me you know um Mm -hmm. that's what v is good generally (laughs) yeah but she's actually look at all this but that's like yeah but that's i i i think that's for me the closest thing to creative block is like when you know you've hit a wall whatever that wall is my uh, only advice i know works for me is sometimes you just need to put things down and go live your life and come back and re-engage with whatever you were working on. And oftentimes the solution will present itself after that. It sure does. Yeah. That's something that a lot of people have said, and it's probably the most, it's probably the most common solution I would say. And I think the hardest part with the solution is like, you have to trust that it will come to you because it's happened to me a couple of times where I'm like working through a scene and I'm like, I can't, I can't get it. And I'm like, well, I should just make lunch. But my first instinct is always like, no, work through it, work through until it's done. And sometimes I'm like hungry enough that I'm like, okay, I'll go eat lunch. (laughs) But then it's like, I get the idea and I'm like, well, thanks, you know, and it's like, well, if I, if I, you know, anyway, it's, you got to trust that it will come to you. And it's like, faith is hard, you know? It is. (laughs) I mean, a lot of my best ideas have come to me while I'm in the I was going to say the shot, like everything I've ever, any like spark of, of, uh, inspiration I've ever had is in the shower. I don't know what it is. You know why? Either. It's because you don't have a phone in the shower. It's not that. <laughs> I mean, this is this is even before cell phones yeah. for me. Like, I don't know why. I mean, I take a like a fifteen minute shower on average. Yeah. I'm not in there a lot, but like, I I thought of the intruder while I was in the shower. Hell I mean, yeah! Like, oh wow! A lot, of, a lot of ideas I've had just are like, hey, what if? You yeah. know, I don't even have my coffee. I'm just in the shower. You know, I don't know why. My my really? yeah. My I was I shower at night. I'm an, I'm a night shower. But my theory is that it's like it's you're blocked off from any outside and, and it's not even necessarily phones. Like you said, it's just like it, it, you're blocked out from anything outside. It's white noise. Yeah. It's yep. repetitive motion. That that sounds dirty, but it's like but it's just like things that you've already done. You know, it's like fucking cleaning yeah. your hair, whatever. It's like you don't have to think, but your your body's moving, your brain's moving. And like, yep. yeah, it's and you're staring at tiles, you're staring you know, at like nothing. Not- yeah. I'm yeah, staring yeah. at times. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it is it is a place where you, yeah. your brain goes inward a little bit. I think know? I, I also, like, personally, I think I learned that, um, you know, unblocking a creativity just from video games because it's a similar set of, like, yeah. you're trying to solve a problem. You're on some boss that's, like, giving you a hard fucking yeah. time. And I used True. to try to force it. And then I realized it's, like, it's 1 a.m., I need to walk away from this. And then the next morning I like knock it out in one go. And it's like, totally. I've done that many, many times or like a puzzle you're trying to solve in a game, trying to figure out how to get up somewhere. And you're like, oh, duh! It was this little knob I yep. didn't see before. You know. Well, it's so interesting too, because like the job that I'm currently doing is a CG, and we're like boarding in Blender, basically. So mm-hmm. I had to learn the software, and I mean, I had a little bit of CG um, training from college, but learning this was really like, okay, like you're, we're really gonna go deep into the software, and. We were fortunate enough that we were um, trained on the job and it was exactly what you're talking about. It's like one, like there were days at the beginning of training, I was like, I'm never, I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to be ready for production. But every time I went to sleep the next day, I'm like, 
whoa, shit, I can actually run through the scene. I can click there in all these yeah. little boxes. I remember where everything is. It's just like this really um, interesting way the brain works. I think when you sleep is like really when it gets yeah. burned into your neurons mm -hmm. or whatever, but yeah, it's, it's, you know. You're learning, but you're learning like. You're Patterns. Learning, yeah, you're learning your own ideas. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's true. <laughs> Interesting. Um, one last thing that we'll ask you is just what are your goals for the future? What kind of stuff do you hope to accomplish in the years to come? I just want to keep being allowed to make fun stuff. I don't have a specific goal in mind. I, I rarely work that way. And if I did, for me, being able to do a Lord of the Rings film. Oh, yeah. Nice. Is a, I mean, like, I can die tomorrow. You know, like, <laughs> that's, that's yeah, it. like the, the only other thing I would want to maybe work on one day that I never have is Star Wars because it was so formulative. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still, I helped launch Clone Wars, so I did meet yeah. with Lucas. I did, I, I did work on Star Wars, but not on the actual storytelling. And if there was one more bridge to cross, it would be that would be the one thing. But after Lord of the Rings, it's been such a formative part of my life for so long that, like, honestly, that's the pinnacle for me. I don't know how I could do anything that would matter as much to me as as this movie does. Mm -hmm. um, and even just being, I mean, we're very early in, but even so far, just in the writing and everything else, it's been one of the most creatively rich experiences I've ever had. So mm -hmm. for me, I honestly am at the point where I, I, there's not much I feel like I need to prove and I just want to keep making fun stuff for as long as I can and collaborating with people and I'm not really going to worry about um, anything else yeah well you know what I just want to I've said it a few times but I'll say it again like the work you've done has been huge it's been formative for many many people like you know, just even having the 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 wherewithal to like get fully coolly over to the states, like that, I that was such a huge moment for me. Like when that first aired, that blew me away, and like is the reason why I got into animation. Like nice. I started doing flash cartoons just try i was just ripping off scenes from fully cool age just like trying to yeah. just like learn how to think like those guys and and all the music work and everything and just keep doing what you're doing because it's you clearly are like plugged into some i don't know some cosmic force that that knows mm -hmm. uh you know what is appealing and and uh, what people will connect with and like it's uh it's really really important i i think that people like you people that are doing that work on the on the back end uh, it wouldn't happen you know creatives can't exist on their own they just can't like it's just mm -hmm. it's it's a business it's a it's a capitalist as business and um and you need those people you need people like you that can bridge that gap between like the executive you know at turner or whatever and and the yeah. and the artists like it's so well thank you yeah yeah really thank you it. thank you that's that's mm -hmm. i i was really excited to, to chat with you and there's you, you said so many insightful things um yeah same here mm -hmm. uh thank you. anything else you want to mention anything you want to plug while you're on the show <laughs> no i mean watch toonami watch we Toonami. have originals now and uh it's on every saturday night at midnight so thank you to everybody that has watched or watched for five minutes or 25 years and I hope that uh, you watch all the way through our 25th anniversary in March. And oh my God. we appreciate all of you, each and every one. 25th anniversary. That's amazing. I know. It's crazy. Uh, well, that's the end of this creative block. Uh, Jason, thanks so much for being our guest and sharing your story. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
And thanks to your listeners. Follow us on Twitter. It's at Creative Block, Creative Without the Vowels, where we ask for drawing prompts and questions to ask your guests. Huge thanks to our editor, Clements, for editing the podcast and Malik for helping us produce the show. Malik was really excited about having you on as well, by the way, our producer. It was, nice. Yeah, <laughs> we, were, we were geeking out. Um, if you love our show, support us on Patreon. Becoming a patron gets you early access to interviews as well as bonus episodes. Click the link in the description of this episode. I've been your host, Gene. And I was V, keeping creative, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.